Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success. And we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing games, marketing, and technology ecosystem. My name is Andrew Agosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-hosts. Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest. Uh, Shum Singh, uh, Managing Director and Founder of Agnesio Capital. Welcome to the podcast room. You've been on the shortlist to join us for quite some time. And so we're very glad that in our third season, we finally get you on board. Cool. Well, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward. Awesome. Our first section is industry insights, where we do a deep dive on industry news, a few articles to cover this week, and uh, Warren's experience gallivanting around New York. So we'll start with that. Yeah, so uh, I spent last week going to NFT NYC. It was my first time going to a uh, like NFT or you know, let's say like Web3 only major show like that. And uh, if you can't tell by my voice, like, you know, one of my main takeaways was like a gnarly case of COVID, which I think about half of us there got. But uh, no, it was, it was an interesting scene. Um, one thing that was really driven home for me being there was uh, like there's a huge just like ocean between uh, you know, where different developers in the Web3 space are right now. So we're obviously largely focused on gaming. And it's like, on one extreme end, you see like some truly amazing projects being built that I think are going to, you know, that some of the underlying uh, ways that they're using Web3 tech and design uh, for both gameplay and economy, I think are going to really change the industry. But on the other end, there's so much garbage. There's just so much like low quality product in that sector right now. And it's kind of painful as, you know, you know, our, our team and, and me in particular, like are huge advocates for what Web3 is going to bring to gaming. But at the same time, like need to acknowledge like the, both the, like the bad actors and the low quality products in the space right now that are really dragging down uh, the reputation and making it really harder to, you know, bring, bring in more people from the, from the mainstream based on, you know, what, what they see and the products that represent the space. So uh, one thing I did want to dig in with you guys, though, is one of the big announcements this year is uh, Solana Labs uh, unveiled a Web3 mobile phone. So um, we pulled a article from Coindesk for this, and I'll just read a couple of poll quotes. So they debuted this on stage at NFT NYC. So uh, the Solana network is getting its own mobile phone called Saga. It's an Android handset, uh, and it's uh, being uh, funded by the blockchain's key stakeholder, which is Solana Labs. So the upcoming device with specialty crypto wallet functions and software development kit for Web3 programs was announced Thursday at NFT NYC. It's going to cost about $1,000 and be available for delivery early next year. Uh, Solana Lab CEO Anatoly Yakovenko said, uh, the and this phone marks the biggest yet uh, bet on mobile focus growth for Solana. So it's going to feature Web3 uh, DAP or decentralized app store, uh, integrated Solana Pay to facilitate QR code and on-chain payments, mobile wallet adapter, and a seed vault that will store private keys deep within the recesses of the phone. Um, and then the executives also contrasted the Solana phone with the App Store uh, from Google and Apple and uh, saying they're basically not going to take a cut of sales. So there's going to be no extractive fees. So this is not the first time someone's tried to build a Web3 phone. There's been some other failed attempts before, but um, Arguably, the market's more mature right now, and with you know Solana Labs directly funding this, 
I'm just curious, you know, you guys both have in-depth knowledge of the mobile segment and Web3 segment. Is, is this going to be a thing? Are we looking at the next Fire Phone? What do you guys think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I mean, look, Solana is clearly definitely one of the kind of clear dominant, you know, or I could say pioneering players in the Web3 space. So if, I think if anybody's got a chance to make a web three mobile kind of folk, you know, functional phone, a success, it's probably someone like Solana. So I think, you know, at least from a conceptual resource, uh, um, you know, perspective, they're, they're certainly one of the, one of the players that could make it a success, but the issue is end user preferences, right? So, I mean, there's been, and I can, I'm going to go back. So you're going to see kind of a little bit how dated I am, but, you know, we're talking about, pre-iPhone, and we're talking about the Nokia N-Gage platform, you know, when that came out to be the sort of content-rich experience for end users. And that was supposed to be actually the app, you know, phone um, device that would have games, content, et cetera, you know, right there for, for Nokia users. And if you guys recall, Nokia was the dominant mobile phone manufacturer at that time. Um, of course, that was not a success. In fact, it was actually a pretty big failure and ultimately led to Nokia's mobile phone business de- uh, demise. Um, so even when you do have a large player and who, who you know kind of goes in with the best of intentions, I think a lot of this just relies on the UI experience, um, the price point to some degree, um, as well as just how how fun and cool and how much of a status symbol does it become for, um, you know, early adopters and end users then? Yeah, I, I largely agree. I, you know, I love the chutzpah and I'm very skeptical of the outcome. I think if you're in the Solana's position, I think you kind of have to make these type of giant bets, right? Cause they are the, they are, you know, very clearly a leader in, you know, blockchain gaming. And they've sort of decided to diversify that across all different components. They're working on attribution in a way that no one else really is in the blockchain space. Um, and I think this is just like a really, really smart bet for them. But I'm very, very skeptical of the outcome. I think, you know, in the same way that Facebook tried it and Amazon tried it and like just not going to pry the iPhone out of people's hands. And I, I don't see because the value of uh, the app the, the of the taxes are being currently burdened by the app developers and not the end users i don't think there's a super compelling argument to the end user to make the switch because they're not the ones feeling the pain of that uh, the tax uh, the apple and google tax and for that reason um unless there is a really really compelling use case that is, expands beyond enthusiasts crypto enthusiasts i don't really see how this becomes mainstream now i think they still have to make this bet and i think it's worth a try but i i unless something really changes that I'm not foreseeing. I, I don't understand how it becomes, it replaces Apple as a predominant device or even a yeah. you know, substantial part of, of Android. Yeah, that, that'll make sense. I mean, I think the one reason it's really important that they're at least taking this swing is in order to get some sort of meaningful mass adoption of, of Web3 gaming, there has to be ways that you can have these experiences on mobile. Yeah. And that's essentially non-existent right now. Like if you've ever tried to you know, you, use mobile wallets to interact with with dApps and play web three games it's you know as as miserable as the experience is today of doing that stuff on desktop it's you know essentially a non-starter on on mobile so someone has to take that swing um and you know hopefully it works even if it doesn't hopefully maybe there's at least a technical breakthrough if there's not adoption and there's some precedent and some other players can build off of that 
um, and provide a you know, better on-ramp for mobile players to have experiences with, with Web3 games. Or hopefully it scares Apple and Google enough to get their act together. Okay, um, let's move on to the next article entitled, The Ronin Bridge is Open. Uh, it's a Ronin newsletter. And so um, our favorite topic, Axie Infinity and Co. So we're going to do another, uh, <laughs> another uh, covering their news. So um, a few quotes from the article. Uh, these are the highlights of their announcement. And Xander, can you can you give uh, for anyone who might be living in a cave, like what this is sort of like the sequel article to? Sure, that's a good point. Good call. We talk about this so much, I forget that people don't. Um, so this is a sequel to Axie Infinity's major hack that happened uh, several months ago now. They were hacked for $625 million in Ethereum and USDC coin. Uh, what this basically meant is that if you were living in the Axie Infinity ecosystem, you were unable to withdraw your tokens out of that ecosystem, which is a big issue if the, one of the core premises of your game is your ability to have tangible assets that you can withdraw from the ecosystem. So um, they were hacked and they spent several months building up their infrastructure to counteract the hack. And this is the release of that. Um, and we'll talk about what that means now. So um, the core the core of this is the bridge is open and all Ethereum and UCC coins owned by Ronin network users are now are now fully backed one-to-one -one by ETH and USDC on Ethereum as promised. All users have been made whole. They've successfully conducted an internal audit and, and two external audits. They've uh, designed new, they've, there's a new bridge design which includes a circuit breaker system as a contingency plan which increases security of the bridge by halting large suspicious withdrawals. And sort of some of the mechanics of how this works is they separate withdrawals into tiers with escalating validator requirements based on dollar amounts with the highest tier of 10 million plus USD requiring human review and is subject to a delay. There's new governor layers, which I won't really get into, but basically it's a another layer of security. And there's also a default uh, 50 million daily withdrawal, which we were set by admins. So this is just another circuit breaker to help people from to stop the potential of just foot pulling out huge amounts from the system. So, you know, I think all in all, this is, they've done a very, very good job of managing the disaster, which was the hack. And I think they've done everything you can expect. The system is made way more robust and secure. They've managed to, at personal expense and at equity expense of the company, make their users whole. So they're difficult space. They're market uh, leaders in like a very, very hard industry. Um, but I think they've done this, handled this about as professionally as can be done. So that's my thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, especially think about what else we've seen in the crypto space the last few months. So many, so many hacks, um, you know, where people just like that, their, their funds, their tokens are just gone with no return. Like um, they really found a way to, I mean, they, they made everybody whole here out of like a, a nightmare situation. And like, this was, this was not easy. Like we know the team, we know how much pain this caused them, but actually pulling this together, um, I think really, you know, as the set up top of the difference between like the, the, the good actors in the space and kind of like the dregs and the sky may have esteem is really differentiating themselves and saying like, yeah, okay. The hack happens to us. Like we, we are going to actually find a way to make it right despite all odds. So like mad respect for how, the, how they've done this, you know, I mean, if, if you had your money in, in, in Luna and UST, like there's, they basically just tried to relaunch like the same thing, you know? Um, and that's the kind of the last thing I want to call out about the Axie team, kind of similar to what they discovered with their own economy. It's like when you're when you're early, when you're a pioneer in something, you're going to make something and it's going to break. And then it's about how do you pivot and how do you learn from that? And we see in the way that they're rebuilding Ronin, like they're not just doing the same thing. Like they're actually, okay, we've we've built this way. We've seen what breaks. 
it sucks. <laughs> now, now, how do we build from here? How do how do we learn from this and, and evolve the space? And it's, um, I, I I hope that this, the way they're handling this gets as much um, coverage as you know the hack itself. It obviously won't, yeah. but you know, <laughs> at least we can do our part in surfacing it. No, I mean, I, 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 yeah, and I think it's a great gesture, particularly to the users who, who've you know spent a lot of time. Um, I think that it's 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 a very philosophical and conscientious thing to do. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of companies in their position would not have chosen that route. Agreed. Uh, for sure. For for and sometimes it, it's just purely motivated by financial reasons or some of their investors saying, well, too bad, you know, uh, it's just, it's just that simple of a decision. So I think that, you know, it's, it's a real testament to, to the founders there and how they want to um, create a good reputation thinking long-term rather than short-term and going for the money grab. Um, so hopefully then that also, you know, trickles down to some of these more emerging players in the space to say, Hey, well, you know, if you want to build a reputation, you want to build brand loyalty, you know, you, users will discern um, who they want to actually spend money uh, with and not. Um, so, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully that is, that sends a positive message to them. But, but again, it's, it's certainly not getting as much recognition um, by various news sources out there. I mean, they just, they just want to splash sensational, sensationalist, right. you know, you know, uh, newsworthy kind of articles out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that also happened in this specific case is some of the big investors looked at it actually as sort of the marquee, marquee company really paving the space. And they realized if this goes down, potentially the whole space goes down. And so a lot of the, the big investors came in and were like, listen, we have to float this because we have so many other bets right in on this segment. And so I think that may be part of why another they had the ability to fund this in a way that other companies wouldn't necessarily because their stature as a as the leader. Not I'm not detracting from the leadership's right. desire it's, to do it, but they have the capability to do it in a way that a lot of other companies wouldn't necessarily. Right. It's about more than just Axie. It's about like, can can the space like show a path forward when things like this happen. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, let's move on to the next article. So this is one from Mobile Dev Memo entitled "Playtica sells controlling stake: colon, Is mobile gaming undervalued?" A few quotes from the article. Joffrey, I think that's how I pronounce it. A tech-focused tech buyout fund has, has agreed to acquire a controlling stake in mobile games publisher Playtica for $21 per share, representing a 46% premium on Playtica's closed price yesterday. Uh, Playtica shares price fell precipitously after the company reported on Q3 reported Q3 2021 earnings in October's and, had, and have trended downward ever since. This is largely due to pressure from ATT on UA and retargeting, which has been the mainstay of their social casino business. And you know the article sort of digs into quite a bit more about the specifics of Playtica, but I kind of wanted to call out the, the thesis of it is like Playtica is actually a case study. And the hypothetical question posed by this article is whether or not mobile games broadly are undervalued. And the author tends to think so. I have thoughts here, but I guess the, I want to open it first, open it up to the floor and say, what do you think? I guess, Shom, you're probably the expert here. Let's go to you first. What do you think about um, this article and the space broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, look, you're going to get deferring, very staunch deferring opinions on either side, right? To say, you know, the bubbles burst and, you know, because of these new sort of 
call it quasi-regulatory uh, um, actions by Apple, and soon Google will follow suit as well, for sure. I think we all see that coming. Um, it has had a pretty adverse impact, right, on 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 UA in general um, across the board, and that's why you've seen so many developers, irrespective of their size, move UA dollars from Apple over to Google, right? But all knowing in the kind of back of their heads, like, whoa, when is Google going to, you know, kind of implement something similar, and you know, things are going to be very very dire at that stage. Right. Um, so I think, you know. I think that there's, you know, this is a kind of a, I think we're in this situation where, okay, the big gatekeepers make a move. It has a sort of intended effect and the public company investors are just kind of playing catch up. Right. They're not really involved in the actual nitty gritty trenches of what's going on and how you can find um, other ways of, of creating um, you know, whether it's from a paid traffic per perspective um, or just generating better K factor and organic traffic. Um, so the, the one thing that I think being in the industry for a very long time, I've learned, and especially I think you guys have seen yourselves, is that a good UA expert manager, you know, will find alternative ways to, to, to generate traffic. I mean, we all know this. That's why, you know, marketers are paid as much as they are. I mean, because they can find really innovative, creative ways of generating, you know, attention to, to different games, apps, what have you. So I do think that that hasn't, of course, seeing those new avenues or channels uh, hasn't arisen in a, in a big, meaningful way yet. But I definitely know that will happen. We just don't know where that's going to happen or where that's going to come from, but I definitely see that. And so I think that this is largely a knee-jerk reaction to saying, oh my God, Apple and Google did this. Sorry, I'm going to move, you know, away from games, you know? And so I think companies, not just Playtica, if you look at even Swedish listed companies who are, who've been pummeled, um, you know, uh, indiscriminately, um, for for having exposure to 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 not even just mobile games, I would say even PC and etc. So I think in general, yes, the market is undervalued because they're not actually factoring in the ability of their internal marketing capabilities, but also working with agencies like yourselves to find the next holy grail of of channels to access new users and bring them in effectively at a cost of, in, in, a, in a very cost effective way. Um, so yes, that's, that's, that's my opinion. I don't know. I don't know when that's going to happen. Right. When, 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 uh, when that actually materializes, but, but I certainly feel that way. Yeah. I mean, one thing we've, we've generally seen, I think in the space is the bigger an organization is uh, obviously the less nimble that you are in making changes to how you operate your business. And that comes from everything, as you said, Shem, to like how you're ma managing and measuring UA to just how you think about your, your finances for the business, for your investment in games and grow, growing those games. Um, and, uh, you know, when I can say for our team personally here at Uptick, like when these changes hit in iOS, the first few months, we were just beating our head against the wall and, and it, 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 it was rough, you know, but we're a pretty small team. We can kind of, you know, zig and zag where we find openings and we found some tactics that have been 
really effective for iOS and, you know, built some of our own tooling around that. And I mean, today for our company, we spend more on iOS and Android. And I think that's, that's outside of the norm, but like the, the lanes are there, but since we're small, we can move and kind of make the calls and how we change our, our, our business strategy in a way that sometimes bigger companies can't. One, one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, um, so Eric Sufert in this article, he, he's referenced this concept a few times of the mobile winter uh, and this idea that for you know roughly two year period, we're gonna kind of be in these dregs, the similar kind of performance, both for the games and for, for share price, obviously, but um, that, that it's like a, a pretty finite period of about two years as tactics evolve, as tech evolves and a rebound after that. What do you guys think about that take of the mobile winter and that kind of timeline? It's interesting that it happens to align pretty cleanly with what people are expecting for a short-term recession. So I wonder, you know, how correlated those things are. I think you sort of touched on it at the top, uh, which is that there's required innovation, and I don't. It's hard to put a time on the, on the innovation. And Shom talked about that as well. Um, I do think valuations, and Shom, you should answer this better than I can. But I do imagine valuations will start increasing once we see there's general marketplace sentiment, market sentiment across all markets. Uh, as, as, as soon as sentiment starts to change, I expect to see mobile valuations change as well. But I guess, Trump, do you have thoughts there? I mean, I, I, I mean, look, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, but don't, you know, we can't deny also, you know, the the macroeconomic, you know, contributing factors right now. Sure. We're in an unprecedented inflationary environment. The Fed mm-hmm. is playing catch up to try to contain it. And um you know, that is having a really adverse impact across the board, pretty much in um, everywhere. So, you know, you're talking about also couple that with with the sort of uh, way, the manner in which China handled, you know, the, their zero kind of COVID policy, which is having all sorts of kind of supply chain issues across the board in every industry. Um, and, and then on top of that, we have a war, you know, going on in, in, in you know, um, a very developer rich uh, um, region. So, you know, when you, when you add, when you add all of these kind of factors together, it, it, it really does, um, you know, point to, to kind of a, 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 if not, if not a a mild, but, but certainly some sort of uh, a recession kind of, kind of upon us. And so again, whether that's linked to it, to a mobile winter, I, I don't really know. I think, I think, you know, we had an incredible bull run for, for 11, 12 years. I mean, so this was kind of expected. Um, and I think it's actually a good thing as, as an economist, you know, I mean, I think, I think you can't have things consistently just going on an upward trend. You need to have a sort of rebalancing, a correction and allow people to kind of just catch their breath um, and then find new ways to innovate. I mean, that's that's usually these are the times when you can actually sit there and, and, and reflect rather than just constantly be executing and just think, OK, well, hang on. How can I do this better? How can I actually uh, um, evolve um, for the better? So I think this is actually a unique period um, for a lot of companies. I mean, I still don't think we're anywhere near the bottom. Um, there's still way, way too much volatility in the market. I think that that might happen by the end of this year, early next year, who knows. But um, I, I I definitely think things are going to remain very volatile and, uh, you know, well into, you know, the early part of next year. Okay, so one of the ways 
I, I've been thinking about this playing the space, and this is not investment advice, but it's what I've been doing personally. Is I think the most interesting way to play the current downtrend is like looking at uh, ecosystem plays like Unity and App Eleven. Uh, I think which are down seventy to eighty percent from their all time high. Unity specifically, even though their tech is not as good as Apple in terms of targeting, and they had a big issue on their uh, last quarter's earnings because they had some tech issues. I mean, in terms of the long-term macro trend, there's no company that's better positioned in games than Unity because an increasing per percentage of every game is being produced on Unity. And the thing is, most of their revenue still comes from their operate business, which is their added business, which we know is not operating on this, firing on the same caliber as companies like Apple. Even. So even if we just throw that business away, the fact that they have 20 or 30% of their business coming from their tool side, which is how every developer, majority of developers are developing games, and that's under monetizing, it just seems like the most insane long-term betting against Unity sounds seems like the most insane long-term long -term trend. So. I don't know. That's just one thought in terms of where I've been thinking about how you can play the space. I, I, I mean, and, 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 and you know, look, that's a great point. Um, I think, you know, as I said, you had such an incredible bull run. All the short-term hedge funds that were out there, I mean, this was their day in the sunshine, right? I mean, they had been waiting and waiting and waiting. So, you know, again, that's, you've had so much kind of short selling across tech in general. And then you add in all these macroeconomic um, issues, um, you know, the headwinds, you know, you, you kind of develop this perfect storm for, for, for share prices going down right. 70, 80%, right? So it's, it's um, you know, when you think about all the people that you probably know that are losing money on their investments, it's a zero sum game. There's other people who are making money on that, right? So it's a lot of the kind of short, ter short term, um, I should, excuse me, I should say the short selling uh, investors. Right. Okay. Um, do we want to move on to the next topic? I know we are. Yeah, let's let's do it. And I, I know we'll come back to a lot of these topics in our main uh, interview with, with Shum. Yeah. So um, next piece of news is something a little more optimistic for the spaces we focus on, which is uh, this article from LinkedIn. Um, it says, another anticipated NFT game makes its way to the Epic Game Store. So uh, this is for uh, Blanco's Block Party, um, which is developed by, by Mythical. Uh, Blanco's Block Party is scheduled to release on the Epic Game Store. The game is currently coming to PC and Mac and will be available for download on a mainstream digital forefront, storefront. Blanco's has already amassed more than 1 million players. The tally will surely increase as the game will be available to a huge mainstream audience via the Epic Game Store. Uh, Blanco's Block Party is the second NFT game that is making its way to the, the Epic Storefront. Uh, previously, Gala Games announced that its Wild West theme NFT game Grit is making its way to Epic Store as well uh, as the first in the niche. So this to me is, is really interesting because I, I, I think that, you know, we'll see if it pans out, but, but Epic has definitely said, you know, we're planning a flag here. We are differentiating ourselves from Steam and from current policy for Apple and Google, you know, and I say current because I think those will both clearly evolve, but I mean, their most direct competitor, Steam, has really drawn a hard line and said, you know, essentially no to anything remotely blockchain gaming. Um, and so now it's, it's, we're starting to see multiple publishers uh, working, actually supported by Epic, not just sneaking their games through, which is some of what we see on these distribution platforms of just kind of clever ways that Web3 games are getting through approvals anyway. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a meaningful way for them to differentiate themselves, and it's, it's pretty promising for the space. What are you guys' thoughts on this? No, you please, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I had the exact numbers on what, how 
Steam compares Epic Games. I don't actually know that number. I know it's growing. And I think there's a really good reason. I think the Epic Store, I thought, was the biggest joke when it first launched. And they've just continually proved me wrong. I log yeah. on to Epic all the time just to take their free games. But then every once in a while, I buy stuff. And it works. And now if they have a further differentiation, which is you get net new games, which you can't get anywhere else. And by the way, it has some of the most fervent fans in the world, which are NFT game players. I mean, I think that, you know, this their Epic is doing a really good job and has done a really good job as an operator for a really long time. And it doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. I wish it was public so we could buy this stock. <laughs> That's my thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'd echo that, right. I, when I, when I look at a lot of the steam users, and I think, I think that's, you know, you, you focus on that demographic profile of kind of the average steam user. And I hate to say average because of course you've got so many different kinds, but you're talking about a lot more purists. A lot of, if you look at a lot of the titles that are on Steam, most of them are single player premium experiences, right? Which cater to a, a massive audience, right? Let's, let's, we can't downplay that at all. But again, it's also a certain demographic profile. They, they have a certain style of, of gameplay as well um, versus Epic, which, which tends to be, again, a little bit more, in, I guess, in my opinion, let's say Web3 savvy, NFT savvy um, that also um, I think is going to be more likely to try new things, investigate new things, be an early adopter. So um, yeah, I mean, that's my view. Yeah. And we kind of see a parallel to this. Um, we're starting to see moves from some of the third party uh, Android stores to be, um, you know, also start to differentiate themselves with um, evolving policies around Web3 gaming uh, faster than, than Google themselves are. So there's a lot more incentive to innovate when you are not the top dog. When you're the top dog, you're always operating from a more of a, a defensive position. Um, yeah. So I, I think this is some really healthy competition and differentiation. So we'll pivot to our main topic uh, where we'll talk about gaming M&A and investing. We have a perfect person to talk about that topic. So. Let us jump right in. Will you tell us a bit about yourself, your background? What is Agnicio and what do you do there? Sure, sure. So um, I'm Shum Singh, the original founder um, and MD of Agnicio Capital. Uh, we were founded in 2003, um, full uh, service investment bank, mainly focused on sell side uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, and we've been exclusively focused on games for, for the vast majority of the time since, since, to, since we were founded. Um, and really what we specialize in is, is really working with founder-owned, founder-led organizations um, and really trying to help them think through uh, when would be an appropriate time to pursue, pursue a particular strategic option, whether that's um, thinking about raising a very large growth equity round maybe um, exiting the company um, or ultimately not doing anything. Um, so for us, um, it's less about the actual transaction. It's more about understanding the both, understanding, I guess, the personal and professional objectives of, of, the, uh, of the studios, of the companies we work with. Yeah, yeah and, and just chiming in uh quickly here you know i've, I've had the, the pleasure of knowing shum for a while and he's been um uh, a great uh it's a mentor benefactor to uptick in our early days um we, a, a few of the studios that that shum has um worked with were early partners of ours that we had some of the most successful outcomes for um companies like uh, candy writer or uh, gen joy um 
And I can say in just like working with him through the years, he really knows all of the moving pieces of the industry. And um, I'd see one, one of your defining traits as well, Shum, and how you work is just a lot of patience and thoughtfulness and how you approach the space and um, you know, the companies you work with, not sort of rushing them to make M&A decisions, but you know, grow their business in a healthy, sustainable way and do what's ultimately the right for the long term for them. And that's not something I see in um, a lot of uh, a lot of key figures in the in the investing world. So I've always respected that about your your team's uh, methodology. Oh, thank you. That's that's very kind. So um, I'd like you to walk us through the timeline of recent game finance and M and A. So you know we, we've touched on this at the top, but just sort of for the you know maybe someone who's not as deeply in the weeds, what are the different eras we've experienced? And we can go back as far as you want, but whatever you think is relevant. So talk about you know what is what have been the recent eras of game game investment, and then where are we now? is that relates to those eras? Sure. So, I mean, I think if you go back, um, I, I, you know, I, I always think of kind of like a couple of, of key dates, right? So, um, and in particular, I would say it's kind of pre-iPhone, you know, so mm-hmm. 2009, let's use that as kind of the, the main year when, when really the app stores took off. And, and, you know, kind of prior to that, we were really kind of in a, in a console PC environment. Um, and, you know, it was, and, it, and if you go even way further back, I'm talking late nineties, early two thousands, um, you were, you know, you know, you really kind of had a small universe of, of publishers who would kind of dictate to the vast majority of other studios, how the sort of publisher developer relationship, uh, functioned. Um, and, and, and a lot of those smaller players were really at the mercy of um, what kind of deals they could be struck, whether it was a co-development deal, et cetera. And uh, so it was, it was great that, you know, you kind of had this, this real, um, you know, kind of eureka moment in 2009 when, when mobile appeared. Um, and then, and then if you think about it, you know, the industry was growing, don't get me wrong, at a reasonable pace for both console and PC. But then 2009, you're talking about a market which was really a couple of hundred million max going to now just mobile as a platform being over kind of 120 billion. Um, And then so when you layer on console and PC, you're talking about an industry that's kind of, you know, getting close to if not exceeding 200 billion per year in in kind of... um, in, in, in just a gross receipts revenue. So, so I think, you know, in terms of M&A and especially with the advent of mobile, you just started seeing a lot more of these mega billion dollar mergers. Um, and so in particular, the last, I'd say, you know, kind of three, four deals you've seen, three, four years, you've seen a lot of these, these deals occur, particularly from, you know, the likes of, Kind of tense and acquiring supercell and and then also even on the pc side with riot etc you know doing doing being being the kind of i'd say the preeminent acquirer of those mega billion dollar plus type transactions but also then microsoft as well you know getting getting you know asserting themselves you know with minecraft back in the day and then very very recently you know more with with kind of uh activision etc and then you know kind of sony getting into the mix right you know, so so you're going to see, I think, more of the, uh, I think, larger players where, where there is appetite. You know, it's kind of, well, 
who's 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 the next player up right so it's you know there's been talk about ea there's been talk about even a ubisoft uh potentially even 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 take two although less likely since they just acquired zingo you know so so i think you'll you'll probably have some more of these mega deals without a doubt in my mind um but of course um given the current situation it might slow things might be slowing down just due to sort of the market volatility yeah that makes sense um you sort of bookended this with two eras one where publishers controlled everything and then you had this explosion of competition and now it sounds like we're in a, a era of reconsolidation is that an accurate read on this and if so what is the implication for the games industry writ large yeah i mean you know i think i think the whole the whole current m a wave you know, trend, I think it sort of peaked around the end of 2020, early 21, when just, I mean, literally, it was wild. <laughs> it was just, it was just every week you're like, oh my God, you know, glue, you know, glue just got acquired by EA. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, Warner Brothers just sold off Playdemic. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, like every week that was the kind of peak time frame, and things are kind of gradually uh, slowing down. And that's, driven by a number of factors. One, there's just not that many large transactions available, right? right. So, so that's, that's one factor for sure. Um, I think the second also is just the whole sort of macroeconomic environment. Um, and so, and I actually think it's a good time for the industry to M&A slowdown. Not great for my business, but <laughs> it's actually a good time because that's usually when um, that allows this this sort of really grassroots uh, movement of of innovation. And there really hasn't been a whole lot when I think about it uh, when it comes to mobile free to play, especially. Uh, it's kind of just more of the same. And if you look at the top even thousand grossing apps, whether on, on, on Apple or Google, a lot of it by, you know, large players. Um, and, and then even some of the smaller independents are actually not small anymore. They're actually right. mid-sized players themselves in, in, in their own right. So, so it's very, very hard for, for a small, even, you know, regardless of how nimble they are, maybe how even, uh, um, experience they are in UA and marketing and publishing, but it's very, very hard to see sort of uh, um, any kind of, of real movement um, in the charts. Um, so, so it is actually a good time for a lot of innovation. Chum, do you think that the, um, the investment world has matured a little bit as far as like their understanding of sustainable versus unsustainable growth in specifically in the mobile space. You know, I mean, I think there is definitely an era where, you know, uh, user acquisition can be wielded like a giant hammer to tell a growth story, but for uh, less, 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 not even less savvy, but less experienced investors, like, the story on paper, if you're comparing to traditional businesses, may look like something other than what's kind of going on underneath. And do you do you think that that a do you agree, do you agree that like there was a period of that, and and b do you see like the uh, investment community in the gaming and mobile space getting a more refined understanding of healthy growth and sustainable growth versus unsustainable?
Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think, you know, when you look at back to kind of early COVID days, right? So you had a, a really a lot of, I would say, new entrants from public company investors getting into the game space because they were kind of like, well, this is the perfect time to actually get exposure to this industry because everybody's at home forced to play in game. You know, what, what else can they do? So it was kind of this, this unique uh, time period. Of course, now that that, you know, we're kind of living in a post COVID environment, at least certainly in most of the Western world, um, people's preferences and dwell, dwell time has kind of more normalized, right? And so of course, um, I think um, that's obviously had an adjustment, but also then you layer on all the market volatility and a lot of those first time investors and in games are kind of running for the hills, right? And wanting to kind of take their money and go invest it in, you know, more stable industries, which, which makes sense. Again, if you're not familiar with the kind of cycle of, of how long it takes to develop a game, publish it, and actually not really having any sort of guarantee of success, that can be a lot to swallow for, for an investor that wants to show to, to, to the people who've, who've trusted, who've entrusted them with their money that they can produce predictable, reliable gains on a, on a yearly basis. Um, so I think there's that disconnect, right? Where, you know, they have a certain uh, objective on, on what they need to do in terms of achieving a certain return versus the life cycle of getting a game out there, which can be very lumpy, um, you know, irrespective of what platform you are, uh, you're, you're, you're developing for, whether it's console PC or, or mobile. Um, so I think that part, that, that sort of part still needs to be, that, that still requires some education. Right. Yeah. So this is sort of like multiple components to feed into this, but we talked about, you have the macro trend downtrend in the market. And then you also, that's causing maybe more, more tourists to flee. So yep. how, with things slowing down, like what does that mean for M&A? Obviously there's less M&A, but does that mean we're at a point now where there's people who understand the market should be, should be being more acquisitive? Like, is there, is there an opening now for people who understand what's going on to take? I, I, I do think so. I mean, definitely there's, there's less buyers than sellers for sure uh, at the moment. But I definitely do think that there's some, certainly some buyers who are, again, very well resourced, have plenty of financial muscle to weather the storm and are thinking very opportunistically and are saying, hey, well, now could be a great time to acquire assets and companies on, on, on at, at better valuations and will take a longer term view. Um, the other thing that I would also add is you've had the, the emergence of private equity and other forms of institutional capital that are taking pretty significant bets in the gaming space um, that, are, that are creating their own sort of gaming portfolio um, and, and kind of you know, ecosystems internally and which who may or may not then take those gaming platforms, if you will, public in three, five, whenever, whenever the markets return and they can, they can sort of achieve some sort of a healthy uh, uh, valuation. Yeah, that makes sense. So are there any specific categories or segments right now that you think are particularly ripe for this type of either acquisition or have been somewhat sheltered from the downturn, the downtrend? And that could well, be like I, game specific or like ecosystem. Sure. I don't, you know, whatever. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, 
I definitely think that, you know, again, and this is also, I guess, attributable to the war in Russia, Ukraine, where I think we mentioned, you know, there's, it's, it's a very video game rich, uh, obviously for a variety of reasons now, um, you know, just the, the West can't have access to. Um, and so that has um, had a knock-on effect um, to a lot of the larger publishers that, you know, want, that have a certain cadence and delivery launch schedule of titles that are now continuing to, you know, that backlog keeps, keeps getting bigger. And so a lot of work for hire or co-development studios, engineering heavy in particular, are becoming more and more attractive, particularly, I would say, those based in, you know, Western Europe, North America, even even other parts of the world, um, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, etc. But um, that you know that really do have good development capabilities that can really get product out there um, and deliver on time. Um, uh, you know, so I think that those companies, and particularly now in, in the kind of market we're in, are seeing a lot of um, interest, and not just from larger publishers, uh, but also probably from from some of the Web three blockchain companies out there that you know need to build all that underlying infrastructure right that we that we talk about all the time that isn't necessarily available today there's only a few people really going out there trying to do that so i think you know a lot of full stack and you know full stack you know development services organizations are in high demand right now for sure that's, that's a really good point shum i i didn't um, even identify the trend, but um, Xander, just thinking in the recent months, we've covered a number of stories of work for hire shops getting acquired, and definitely that pace has uh, picked up the last few months. And it totally makes sense when you think about where what's needed in order to ship a game. Like obviously, developers, it's like the core of the entire enterprise. So it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think on top of that, look, you know, whether you're a mobile free-to-play, PC premium, et cetera. I mean, look, we can certainly say there's always appetite for well-run, solid, growing studios despite market volatility. And people who, again, acquirers who do take a longer-term view, they will really value companies that can see synergies. They'll they'll still pay up whether median or average value, you know, multiples of, of companies are coming down or, or not. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, if we do a little bit of forecasting, I know this is hard to do, but I am curious as your general opinions. Like, where do you foresee the, to the best of your ability, <laughs> where do you foresee the games industry unfolding over the next, let's call it two, five, and ten years? And like, what is the, yeah, and what is the importance in terms of M and A for that process? It's a big question. <laughs> it's a huge problem. That's why it's our last one. <laughs> it's, it's a yeah, it's a big one. So I, I I would say in in the next two years, I think that's probably easier to answer. I think that, sure. you know, and I think everybody would probably at least to some degree concur um, that there is gonna be probably a lot less uh, transactions occurring um, pretty much across the board. Um, I think that's, that's yeah, everybody's kind of forecasting that. Um, I think what's interesting is the kind of five or 10 year view. So one thing that I do see, one, one kind of glimmer of hope is I see a lot of, a lot more early stage VCs right now um, looking at deploying capital into smaller, nimble teams, you know, sometimes as much as just five guys who've, who've, who've you know, come out of a great studio that, you know, want to make another top grossing title. 
Um, and so there's there's a lot of capital out there that's supporting a lot of teams. Uh, and, you know, for in mobile free to play as an example, I think countries like Turkey, you know, that have exploded, Israel, uh, Finland still, um, you know, and of course, a whole bunch of other, you know, kind of now even less well-known countries. So I think India is going to be massive, you know, in the coming years. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's just starting to kind of uh, emerge um, as, as a really interesting um, country. So I think that the pr prospects are, are pretty exciting, you know, um, but I think won't really just start materializing. If I look at the cohorts of, you know, uh, uh, studios that are getting funded now, a lot of those games probably won't come to market for the next two, three, four years. So I think in five years, you're going to just start seeing those vintages of companies getting funded, you know, kind of around now, you're going to start to see just the beginning in five years of those really interesting games um, that are, that are, that are going to start performing really well. And, uh, um, and then I think by 10 years, I'd say even before, I'd say there's an intermediate time frame. I think it's seven years is when you're really going to see some really exciting stuff happening. Um, and maybe some, you know, kind of are, are able to move or move, move some of the incumbent players around um, and give them a run for their money. Um, on the PC side, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's a very different uh, landscape. I think, you know, as long as people have a great idea out there, maybe even get a couple of Kickstarters going, you know, they can, they can always kind of, I think as long as there's a, there's real true passion and, and innovation, um, you'll just keep churning out cool, cool studios, irrespective of where they are. Okay. I, we have to, we have to end this, but I, I have a question. So in terms of you talk about incumbents being unseated, are there any specific hot takes you want, you can, you can predictions you can give us in terms of what you think actual incumbents are potentially in danger in on the 10 year timeline? You know, I think, I, I mean, there's no one I can think of in particular right yeah. now, and I wouldn't probably want to name names. That could probably, that would come back to bite me, but um, I, I think all incumbents right now should be afraid. Okay. They really should be afraid because they're frankly not innovating, not supporting or investing. I mean, right now, okay, even if your A department is profitable and cash generative, to deploy that capital as a VC in up and coming studios, and 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 you know, it's it's such a small amount to invest, but to get knowledgeable about what it was like to be innovative, you know, a long a long time before, because most of these incumbents were, you know very small 10, 15 years ago. Right. So, so I think, but they've just forgotten, you know, the sort of the tools and, and the passion and, and the, and, you know, there's just this sort of drive that they had back then and, and they've become very corporate and professional. Right. Okay. Um, well, as much as I'd like to continue talking about this, uh, we have to move on to our last section, which is after the week. Uh, so Warren, do you have an up this week? I sure do. So um, amongst everything else that happened in the last week, uh, we were uh, fortunate enough to get to participate in a game launch for a, a number one mobile game. So uh, that is going to be my game this week. So uh, this is a huge shout out to the team at Kabam, one of our partners, and a uh, really successful launch for Disney Mirrorverse. Um, and I'm calling this out not just because it's something that we worked on, uh, but because it's it's I think 
one of the first kind of really great new mobile games that I feel like I feel like it should not work this good for <laughs> for a few reasons. So like for a little context on on, on Disney Mirrorverse, um, it's a it's an action RPG I'd say at its core, but with like a really heavy uh, hero collector and like team build out mechanic. So it's gonna scratch it scratches a few different itches from like the kind of a collectible itch, uh, strategic and like loadout um, angle, and then sort of like a button mashy, twitchy gameplay in some of the combat as well. And uh, you shouldn't see a game like with this many sort of like overlapping systems and uh, a behemoth IP, like this is this basically like the, you know, I, I wouldn't say everything, but it's a pretty exhaustive cast of characters from the Disney universe that you can mix and match on your teams. Um, and a lot of times when there's like, you know, big IP, attached to an ambitious game it all kind of gets bogged down and this game did have a really long development cycle but i think the results speak for themselves like the it's it's held up five star ratings number one in rpg it hit number one in ios number two in android and overall games and it's just fun i when i was stuck in bed with covid like i was i was having fun like really getting to to dive into the game more um and i just don't feel like we see a lot of breakthroughs like this of um you know, to me, this is like this is AAA for you to play, and obviously we have a bias here. But um, I'd say go go check it out. Um, people have been loving it. Feedback's been like very very positive in the in the community, and uh, just want to congratulate the Kabam team on on pulling off something great here. Yeah, awesome one, good one. The only reason the only reason I didn't play more of it is Diablo Immortal, so blame them. <laughs> cool, uh, Shom, do you have an app this week? I, I do, you know, it's not it's not anything new, but it's uh, it's a game that I constantly come back and play. And so it was uh, released a while ago, um, about two, three years ago, actually pre-COVID uh, by a Canadian developer called Capybara Games uh, in Toronto. And uh, the game's called Grindstone. It's actually an Apple Arcade game. Yep. And, um, and um, I came across it because uh, I have kids and I love to play arcade games with them. Uh, because it's just a very safe, uh, you know, kind of curated environment for them. And, um, you know, kind of literally within a few weeks of, of playing this with my daughter, I kind of realized very quickly, I was like, this actually game is probably more for me because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really, I mean, of course, I, I understand that I like puzzle games, you know, kind of match three, but, but this one with the sort of, I would say, kind of Nordic lore and, and, and kind of, humor behind it as well that's uh that's very distinct um it it, it just kind of pulls you in and uh and it 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 you know they, they balanced it really well so it keeps you coming back and trying to find a way to you know consistently progress and level up and etc but uh but yeah the game design is really really good and um uh, I, I, I don't feel as though I'm constantly grinding all the time, even though that's ultimately what I'm doing, because I am actually deriving satisfaction from it. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good game. I've played it. They do a really good job of, it skins it in such a way, it almost doesn't feel like a puzzle game. It almost feels like sort of like an action yeah, like an action. RPG almost, like a turn-based right? turn, turn yeah. RPG, but it is a yeah. puzzle game in its core. And one of the other kind of cool call-outs here is, uh, because Apple Arcade, there's none of the stupid microtransaction stuff in order to progress. So they don't negate it in the way that like a lot of the other similar games do. So that's you know one score one for Apple in that case. Yeah, and and Chum also doing us the service of reminding everyone that Apple Arcade exists, which we forget sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're 
Yeah, Andrew, do you have a do you, do you have a game this week? I don't have a game this week. I do have an app this week. Um, so this is an app that um, is a couple of buddies of mine who I wanted to call out. They're, they just launched an app called SidePocket. SidePocket is a tactical investing platform that is trying to compete with the likes of Robinhood for new ways for people to use digital, to digitally invest. So I'm not going to try and do the whole pitch, but basically what it is, is, you know, you set up an account with them similar and they use like Apex, so similar to what someone like Robinhood does. And so instead of choosing specific stocks, you choose side pockets, which are basically algorithmic uh, strategies for how you want to invest. Then on the back end, they manage all the complexity of deploying those strategies in a systematic way, which gives you access to hedge fund level investment strategies for average consumers. Very early, you have to sign up for waitlist. But if this isn't the best idea I've heard in finance recently, I don't really know what it is. I'm very excited to see how this company goes. Um, friends of mine again, so I'm a little bit biased here, but um, definitely check out Side Pocket if you're curious and interested in that sort of thing. Cool. Um, well, we are at time. I know Shum's got to go, so let's just wrap up real quickly. Shum, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to have you on after all this time. Uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Ignatio, uh, where can they do that? Um, you know, well, firstly, thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, really, really enjoyed it. You can go to our website directly, www.agnitiocapital.com. Uh, you can see some more about what we've done, see some case studies, transactions, and there's a whole bunch of uh, contact info available there. Awesome. Warren, do you want to take us out? Yeah, Shum, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on, man. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. And I think the timing is perfect with the current market conditions to get some sage-like wisdom from you for the listeners. So uh, yeah, I mean, we, we talked a lot about, you know, things being more challenging for developers in times like this and kind of less free cash floating around, which is all the more reason that we see the developers we talked to being a lot more methodical with how they are growing, how they are measuring things, and just kind of, you know, what is the ROI they're getting for each dollar that they throw in growing their games. Um, and that's exactly where our team thrives. So here at Uptick, you know, you've heard our spiel before probably, but we help game developers grow. We provide the both the technology, automation tools, and the full service team to handle UA, creative, and analytics, and to get you through the bad times as well as the good for uh, you know long-term, sustainable, profitable growth is what we aim to support with all of our developers. So if you need help with that, feel free to reach out to us through our website. That's uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Talk, Talk soon. soon.